hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America on Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I want to get into this week's news, which includes a lot of new information regarding vaccination of children ages 5 to 11 and the proceedings both at the FDA and the uh, CDC. The FDA basically makes the determination on the emergency use authorization, and then the CDC provides the implementation and the recommendations. This is for the first time, by the way, in history, has anything gone down like this in terms of a vaccine or a new medicine. We also have news from Senator Ron Johnson's vaccine injury press briefing, which for the first time had physicians there as well. Uh, But I can't uh, help myself uh, with respect to giving you a window of what's happening from a sociological perspective uh, in our culture dealing with vaccines and the mandates and this um, incredible, overwhelming um, uh, push for compliance. For the first time, our freedoms are being openly limited, and boy, are we feeling the blowback. This is Blind Joe, and this came out on Real Country. Uh, I will not comply. I'll just play a little bit of it, uh, just giving you an idea of what's happening in folk music. I think he's got it right. The only way for us to break the silence is to do something right now. And I can tell you that I think it's an incredible time uh, to be alive in many ways. And for any of you who find something like this, uh, you know, I am not a music expert or a connoisseur of music. This was uh, sent to me by 
uh, one of our colleagues through our C19 um, uh, listing group, if any of you find some music that you think really fits the bill and you want to hear a few, you know, a few minutes of it on the McCullough Report, send it to me because I want to, I want to hear what you are listening to out there. What is the pulse of America on the COVID-19 pandemic and what's happening? He was pretty clear. He's, he's not going to comply. He's not going to wear a mask that works. He's not going to take a vaccine that he could die with. And people know it now. And this is a filtering into our music. Well, it's been an overwhelming week, really, with respect to uh, the news. Let, let's get into the press briefing held by Senator Ron Johnson, attended by, both by patients who've been injured with the vaccine, prominently uh, an orthopedic surgeon who developed um, uh, spinal myelitis, uh, transverse myelitis, and was paralyzed after taking one of the COVID-19 vaccines. But I wanted you to hear a commentary from Dr. Peter Doshi, who's at the University of Maryland. He's the associate editor of the British Medical Journal. And uh, I just want you to, he's, he is beyond reproach. He is thought to be absolutely, uh, completely academically credible and, uh, and respected in terms of his interpretation of the medical literature and science. And he teaches a course, as he'll tell you, uh, at the University of Maryland in pharmacovigilance and biologic product safety. Thank you, uh, Senator, for hosting all of us. Hello, I'm, I'm Peter Doshi. For identification purposes, I'm on the faculty of the University of Maryland and editor at the BMJ. I have no relevant conflicts of interest, and my comments today are my own. In pharmacy school, I teach a required course on how to critically appraise the medical literature. We train students on how to go beyond a study abstract and start to pick apart and critically assess biomedical studies, not just take them at face value. I want to use my five minutes here to harness that spirit of critical thinking. I'm saddened that we are super saturated as a society right now in the attitude of everybody knows that has shut down intellectual curiosity and led to self-censorship. So let me start with a few everybody knows examples that I'm sure, I'm not sure we should be so certain about. Everybody knows that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. But if hospitalizations and deaths were almost exclusively occurring in the unvaccinated, why would booster shots be necessary? Or why would the statistics be so different in the UK, where most COVID hospitalizations and deaths are among the fully vaccinated, as Senator Johnson said? There's a disconnect there. There's something to be curious about. There's something not adding up, and we should all be... You know, you can tell by his comments that, uh, you know, just common sense should have all of us wonder, well, how come things are not adding up? Is it true that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated? What does that even mean? Next slide, please. Then there's this. Everybody knows that COVID vaccines save lives. In fact, we've known this from early 2021, the clinical trials proved that to be the case, as you can see here in the quote of a February article in the Journal of the American Medical Association. But is it true? 
When that statement by prominent public health officials was penned, and I can tell you that he goes on to show data that it's not true. The vaccines do not save lives, and even in the registrational trial data, it's clear that the vaccines don't save lives. There were slightly more deaths in those who received Pfizer than those who had received placebo in the registrational trials. We later learned that the clinical trials were not truly double-blind. They were considered observer-blind. And so the individuals making the allocations of the vaccine versus placebo in the regular and the registrational trials were not properly blinded. So we have a circumstance that it is clear that uh, we have what's going on from a clinical trial, FDA, CDC, and National Institutes of Health Perspective. We have malfeasance. We have uh, wrongdoing by those in position of authority, and we have willful misconduct. And through our music, and through our scientific testimony and through our scholarship and our review, this is being exposed. The questions are, how can this possibly ultimately be stopped? We know that this vaccine train cannot keep going. We have heard reports now that multiple countries have pre-purchased enough doses of vaccines in order for administration to happen every six months for years for each person in the population. And there is great concern that, in fact, this can lead to a, an accumulation of the original Wuhan spike protein, that 1,200 amino acid protein, which is the spine on the ball of the virus, the ball is the nucleocapsid, that Wuhan spike protein that was manipulated in the lab in the Wuhan, China, with gain-of-function research, particularly at the furin cleavage joint between the outer S1 and the inner S2 segments, that's what made that protein so lethal and damaging to the human body. Now we're giving vaccines that code for that original Wuhan spike protein. Well, this last week I had an explosive interview with Alex Jones uh, in studio, and I wanted you to hear just a clip of this interchange between Alex and myself cohesive because the spike protein on the ball of the virus is the same protein that's in the human body after vaccination. So whether or not someone's been exposed to it for the respiratory illness or whether or not someone's taken the vaccine, they now are exposed to the spike protein. What do we know about this? Uh, in a paper by Avolio and colleagues, it's clear the spike protein does damage the heart through pericytes. I think it's unequivocal. The US FDA, all the other regulatory bodies have warnings. Pfizer and Moderna cause myocarditis. I think everybody should understand this. Myocarditis is heart injury. I've seen it. I've reported it to the CDC. I've had CDC officers call me and verify it. This syndrome is not mild because it requires hospitalization. We have a situation where bioethics is off the rails. Parental rights are now taken away and children are going to be faced with a potentially fatal decision. We've never seen this ever in human history. I told you about the spike protein in myocarditis, neurologic injury, immunologic injury. There is a spike protein induced disease, Alex, that occurs about two weeks after the vaccine. It's called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, VITT. It has its own acronym now in medicine. It, there's bleeding from the gums and mouth. There's a hemolytic anemia, blood in the urine, 
uh, uh, patients go into renal failure, they develop thrombosis at the same time. It can be fatal. It's very serious. The two chairmen of the FDA uh, go, Scott Gottlieb, who's my contemporary, a little bit younger, he's actually on the board of Pfizer and he's advising America on MSNBC uh, and, uh, to uh, about vaccines. He's on the board of Pfizer. Uh, Stephen Hahn, the one who followed him, he actually joined the investment capital firm that is behind Moderna. You have Rick Bright, the person who blocked hydroxychloroquine stores uh, in the White House as Peter Navarro was trying to free them. Rick Bright joins the Rockefeller Foundation. The conflict of interest is in the open. The NIH co-owns the patent for the Moderna. The conflict of interest is in the open. The censorship is in the open. The Trusted News Initiative announced December 10th said it will only promote the vaccine and it'll do everything to squash vaccine hesitancy, including early treatment and anything on vaccine safety. Introducing. So you can uh, tell there that um, I am doing everything I can to bring this information to the public, to bring this to the fore. Uh, others in my circle, yeah, including Senator Ron Johnson, uh, with the vaccine injury uh, press briefing, uh, with people coming forward who have absolutely no conflict of interest, have been injured with the vaccine, real people are trying to bring this important message to America. The hardest thing to digest is why so many people can take the vaccine, have a sore arm for a day or two, and then nothing after that. So uh, there, you know, there are obviously tens of millions of people who think the vaccine is perfectly fine. And if they can be convinced that the vaccine also works against COVID-19, or better yet, if they can be convinced that their vaccine only works if everybody else takes the vaccine, then those who are promoting the vaccine are achieving their agenda, if you will. They're uh, uh, using their propaganda to try to not only fully vaccinate the population one time, but to get them enrolled in a schedule where there would be immunizations now every six months. We have an analysis that 22 studies now show waning immunity. Uh, basically, the immunity is run out with the vaccines after six months. So the duration is not there. Everyone it will be on some type of schedule to continue to receive these vaccines. And the great concern is that the spike protein will accumulate in the human body. Let's pick up with Alex Jones for another quick clip. Peter McCullough is in studio with us till basically the uh, middle of the next hour, and then he's on an airplane to another uh, event where he's been speaking to crowds as big as 5,000 people every few days. He, he was telling me during the break when he got here, amazing global awakening, a rediscovery of science. Uh, they say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, certainly it's a necessity now for folks to understand what's happening and get informed uh, and not just believe Fauci or it could be lethal. So he joins us, americaoutloud.com forward slash the dash McCullough dash report. And he's also written the uh, large portions of the new book that's number one on Amazon Medical, COVID-19 and the Global Predators. We are the prey with introductions by Peter A. McCullough, M.D., MPH, Elizabeth Lee Villet, MD, Vladimir Zevzelenko, MD, and of course, Peter R. Bregan, uh, MD, Ginger 
Ross Bregan as well. And now one of the top best-selling books in the country. I remember when they were on a few months ago with us, it was just in pre-sale. So very, very exciting to see that awakening. So much to cover, Doc. So I'm going to try to really give you the floor here as much as possible. I, I asked you, what's one thing you want to get to first? And that's this huge news, persistence of spike protein in human body after COVID-19 respiratory infection and the vaccine causing acute and chronic illnesses. Thank you for being here, sir. Well, thanks for having me. Please, can, please take over. Well, we were stunned. Uh, I think the whole medical community was stunned by a paper in preprint. First author is Bruce Patterson. And Dr. Patterson is a brilliant uh, molecular biologist. He also has uh, his uh, molecular biology uh, investment interest in companies working on in vitro diagnostics. But very importantly, what he demonstrated in CD16 human monocytes that after the respiratory infection, SARS-CoV-2, the virus, COVID-19, the infection, after the respiratory infection, and patients sick enough to be in the hospital, and remember, Alex, last time I was on, you had COVID-19 yourself. I've had it. What Dr. Patterson showed is that the S1 segment of the spike protein, remember, the, the virus is a ball. The spines on the ball are the spike protein. That's where all the damage is done by the spike protein to the human body, that the S1 segment, the outer segment, persists in human monocytes for 15 months after the respiratory infection. And in layman's terms, this is a big development. We get infections. All, everybody listening has had an infection in one time or another, a cold, a bacterial infection. I can tell you, I can't think of any remnant of a virus that is so dangerous that stays in the human body for 15 months. No wonder people have long COVID syndrome. It's now known uh, in autopsy studies and other analyses that uh, the spike protein goes everywhere in the human body. It goes into the brain, it goes into the heart, it goes into other critical organs, it's been identified in the kidneys. The Chinese have found uh, the virus itself and the spike protein in all kinds of body secretions, in urogenital and respiratory uh, uh, secretions. And we now infer, because the vaccines all code for the original spike protein. This is the Wuhan spike protein, the 1200 amino acid uh, a, a, a protein that's the spike that's on the spine of the virus. This is the protein, Alex, that we know causes organ damage. It causes uh, endothelial and blood vessel damage and causes blood clotting. This spike protein is coded by the adenoviral, which is Johnson & Johnson, and coded by the messenger RNA, which is Pfizer and Moderna. The spike protein is coded by these uh, genetic platforms. Uh, these platforms uh, go into the human body after each injection, form a mosaic of cells in the human body that produce the spike protein in uncontrolled conditions for an uncontrolled duration of time. And because the antibodies that are generated to the spike protein are far higher and greater than the, of the natural infection, I infer as a scientist that in fact the spike protein exposure after a, a vaccine injection is greater than that the respiratory illness. So what I'm telling your listeners is we now know for the first time, and this is breaking news, that after vaccination, the spike protein is likely after each injection to persist for probably more than a year. You can imagine, Alex, with injection number one and then injection number two a month later. Now in immunocompromised, it's suggested a, in, uh, injection number three another month later and then a booster at six months. It will become impossible for the human body to clear out the spike protein. They're creating a permanent infection. They're colonizing the body. It's, you know, it's, I'm not sure if it's an infection or if right now at this point in time it's best to characterize that it's in a permanent install of an inflammatory 
damaging protein in the human body. Wow, it's funny, Bill Gates said almost two years ago when this first all started that there'd be multiple shots and boosters like he just knew all about this. And the worst thing he'd want to do was give it over and over again. And it just seems to really be premeditated, doctor. People have been focusing on the genetics. So the adenoviral or the messenger RNA, I can tell you, I think the focus really ought to swing to the spike protein. This spike protein we know, two segments, S1 the outer, S2 the inner. The, what the connector is the furin cleavage joint. The furin cleavage joint was the target of gain-of-function research done in the Wuhan uh, Virology Institute. This is where the action was. This was between the Chinese. They needed the intellectual capital from the United States. The National Institute of Health had uh, approved grants. Uh, the grants weren't so much about the money, Alex. The grants were really about the intellectual property and the ability to actually create a, a, a spike protein that would fit in a lock. Well, you can tell from that interview that uh, Alex Jones is really on fire with the lead now that, in fact, we're loading the body with spike protein with these vaccinations. And it is uh, with great certainty that if a human body is loaded with enough spike protein, which we now know is completely damaging to the cardiac, nervous, immunologic, and hematologic systems, that disease will happen. It certainly will happen in a uh, proportion of individuals and probably with greater and greater doses of spike protein loading in the body, disease will become more severe and more prevalent. So what I did with this uh, show to this week, and I wanted it to be, it's a more serious show, is go ahead and bring to you the person who made this discovery of the persistence of spike protein in the human body, Dr. Bruce Patterson, and I'll introduce him on the back half of the McCullough Report. Dr. Patterson is unassailable. He tra trained at the University of Michigan and then Northwestern University. He was on faculty at Northwestern and Stanford. Now, it is heavy science. He'll go through in detail uh, the molecular biology of what he understands and also the importance of why we need in vitro diagnostics, why we need lab tests to tell people where they are in their course of COVID-19 illness. Is uh, there still active inflammation? Is there triggering of blood clotting? And how crude 18 months into this our laboratory assessment is. I mean, we measure a C-reactive protein, a very nonspecific test to see if there's general inflammation. It can be elevated in a variety of different conditions. We measure the D-dimer to see if there's a triggering of the blood clotting system. Again, a very nonspecific test. And then we see lymphocyte depression on the CBC. Uh, we see a few other findings. And what Dr. Patterson is doing is taking it to a whole nother level with uh, multi-channel in vitro diagnostics to really give us uh, insights on where someone is in the disease. Is there laboratory support for long COVID syndrome or is there not? And I think he'll have very clear evidence and laboratory evidence of is there vaccine injury or not from a clinical laboratory perspective. So hopefully the back half will be interesting to you. I can tell you he doesn't um, water it down at all. So for those of you in healthcare, those of you are doctors, nurses, scientists, you'll readily uh, understand this. Those of you who are not trained in this area, that uh, interview on the second half will be a little bit more difficult to interpret, but you can understand how true he is to the science and how greatly concerned we both are with respect to this new discovery. 
So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Dr. Peter McCullough, I want to talk to you for a second about the power of gel. I'm talking about healthy cell products, which are the next generation of nutrient delivery. The microgel is the next generation nutrient delivery technology, replacing tablets, capsules, and powders. This unique technology, formulated by world-leading nutritional scientists, ensures maximum absorption into the body by releasing extremely small, ultra-bioavailable, soluble nutrient particles in the digestive tract. Now, the products I have featured on the show so far and the ones I've tried And the only ones that I can tell you I will support are ones that I've tried myself and I've had some patient experience with them, include the Immune Super Boost product, which I think is ideally positioned for individuals both in the acute stress of the COVID-19 illness and then in the recovery. Because I can tell you COVID-19, I've had it myself. It is a tremendous catabolic strain on the body. The demands on the body are extraordinary, particularly when pulmonary involvement occurs. And there's no surprise that with the tremendous weight loss and muscle mass uh, that there is depletion of micronutrients. Uh, The GI tract is not working correctly in COVID-19. Many patients have uh, diarrhea. And boy, do we need products that are rapidly absorbed and that can help boost the immune system and fight off the virus acutely. So um, immune super boost clearly plays a role in acute COVID-19. But I extend it into the post COVID uh, period of time uh, in that long hauler syndrome because the nutritional repletion takes a tremendous amount of time. And during the long COVID syndrome, we know that there is a problem with brain fog. And there, the healthy cell focus and recall product plays a critical role in helping get some of the uh, central nervous system and peripheral nervous system function which is very subtly off. Anybody who's had long COVID syndrome knows it's a very uh, a, a slight, uh, barely perceptive uh, feeling of being off mentally. Focus and recall product helps get that restored. And then the final component of the long COVID syndrome, which I think is so terribly important to recognize, is sleep disturbance. People aren't sleeping right. And I, I can't tell you how many patients I ask about that. They say, doctor, my sleep is still not back on track. Here, Healthy Cell has a wonderful solution. I think this is the most effective of all their products. It's called the REM Sleep Supplement, and it is uh, a product that supports all four stages of sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep cycle support. It is far beyond a melatonin supplement and far beyond a prescription sleep uh, uh, medication. Uh, The REM Sleep Supplement is the only product that actually helps restore healthy, high-quality sleep and when someone is restful, there is uh, the amelioration of a surge of catecholamines and cortisol and other stress hormones. And so when the body starts to cycle back normally from a neurohormonal perspective, everything starts to unwind. Sleep gets progressively better. And I think with all these supplements, the key is to take them every day, take them on a regular schedule. And for long hauler syndrome, we are talking about schedules that last three months, six months, sometimes even a year to begin to get out of the syndrome now that we know that the spike protein persists in the human body for at least a year in the respiratory infection. So this is an integration of science and technology. I'm so happy that Healthy Cell is a sponsor of the McCullough Report. Uh, Go to their website, healthycell.com, and in the promotional code, type in OUTLOUD, 
and get 20% off your first purchase of Healthy Silk products. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to bring to the show for the first time a name I've mentioned many times on the McCullough Report, Dr. Bruce Patterson. Dr. Patterson received his bachelor's degree at University of Michigan, one of the nation's top undergraduate universities. He went on from there to go to medical school at Northwestern University in Chicago. He did his uh, training in residency in viral pathology at Northwestern. And then he had faculty positions both at Northwestern and Stanford University. And he uh, was uh, uh, the recipient uh, for many years of prestigious National National Institutes of Health funding And uh, he has uh, basically been, from the very beginning, one of the um, iconic scientific leaders in our clinical and um, basic uh, molecular biological understandings of COVID-19. So I specifically brought him on the show to have him introduce himself and let him tell the audience about the contributions both he and his collaborators and his laboratory collaborators have made so far in COVID-19 and where things are going. Dr. Patterson, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. It's really a pleasure to uh, to be on uh, on your show. And uh, I think, yes, uh, this has been a long, long journey. And uh, first, I'd like to point out that I couldn't do it without all of my colleagues at IncelDx who have made all this uh, all this possible. But uh, the long and short of it is that I was in China in January, the first week in January in 2020, and uh, I was in Shanghai, scheduled to visit a customer uh, in uh, Wuhan, uh, which was running some of our uh, immunologic and oncologic um, uh, diagnostics when uh, we started talking about this new, and they called it an immune virus. Um, in Shanghai, and I, you know, I wondered, you know, what's an immune virus, right? I mean, all viruses essentially uh, have their implications uh, for the immune system, and certainly where I started out with HIV research in the in the early 90s uh, was, you know, the, you know, virus, of course, that um, uh, affected the immune system uh, so much, and, you know, one of the first things I noticed uh, about uh, SARS-CoV-2 was uh, some of the similarities and some of the differences with, uh, with HIV. I mean, clearly from the data that I saw in China and later um, uh, developed at IncelDx, we saw essentially this uh, massive uh, cytokine storm, uh, a predominance of the innate immune system. Uh, and we talked about the role 
of various constituents uh, in the innate immune response uh, against COVID. And this was acute COVID at the time. And I will talk about how that translates to a lot of our work in, in long COVID and now post-vaccination, long COVID and post-Lyme, uh, et, et cetera, where um, some of our newer papers will start um, uh, talking about the different immunologic abno abnormalities and some of their similarities uh, between one another. But what we first noticed um, in acute COVID was a preponderance of uh, macrophage involvement, macrophage activation, uh, pro-inflammatory macrophages making all kinds of um, damaging uh, cytokines um, that, you know, in, in the immune phase of, of acute infection, uh, were really causing a lot of the morbidity and mortality. And a lot of it was driven by a particular um, chemokine that we were interested in called RANTES or CCL5 and its interaction with CCR5. And one of the first comments I made to our colleagues in China uh, in January was that we really need to think of this emerging infection uh, more along the lines of how we think about uh, uh, immuno-oncology and cancer. Uh, in other words, uh, what we were seeing was uh, macrophages, which in cancer, of course, the pro-inflammatory macrophages are pro-tumor. -pro um, in the same way, these inflammatory macrophages were pro-virus. And we knew that with CCR5 antagonists, we could reprogram uh, macrophages from an uh, M2 phenotype to an M1 phenotype, which is to say we can move them away from being pro-inflammatory and making a host of pro-inflammatory cytokines such as interleukin-6, uh, TNF-alpha, uh, and others, and make them you know, more effector cells. And in addition, CCR5 antagonism allowed us to inhibit the, an influx of T regulatory cells, which we know in cancer then inhibit the immune response against cancer and by the same token inhibit the immune response, both innate and adaptive uh, against COVID. So, you know, we started some of the early trials with CCR5 antagonists in both under EIND uh, and in several studies and they're very successful. Um, and I think they were successful because they lowered interleukin-6, which was uh, another important cytokine at the, at the hallmark of, of acute COVID. So it, it did that, lowered interleukin-6, lowered TNF-alpha, lowered um, VEGF, which uh, caused, as we now know in long COVID, uh, a lot of the, it can cause peripheral neuropathy. It's a, it's a, also a marker of vascular inflammation, which we've found in both acute uh, and long COVID. So it was just an important um, first, I think, um, you know, discovery of how we might attack uh, from a treatment standpoint, uh, both acute and long COVID. And then what we were noticing towards the uh, end of these acute COVID trials was that 
patients were uh, getting out of the hospital. They were getting better. Uh, they didn't die. But by no stretch of the imagination was their immune system back to normal. Yet they're home and dealing with a highly, highly abnormal immune system. Um, and some had ongoing symptoms or some had improvement of symptoms that then got worse. And, and this was around June of 2020 and was the first time we started uh, thinking about long COVID or as we now know it, uh, PASC. And what we did was said, we, we looked at at first 150 different biomarkers in both acute uh, and long COVID. And then we narrowed that down to about 14 that our machine learning and AI told us were most important uh, in terms of differentiating the various stages of, of COVID, both severity uh, and chronicity or, or long COVID. And all of a sudden, when we, 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 we took the immune profile and put it through machine learning AI, we found a very distinctly different um, immunologic condition that we published and, and now recognize as um, long COVID or PASC. And it's entirely different than acute COVID. And, and we have a what's called a long hauler index which is a composite of biomarkers, which, which are focused on what differentiates long COVID from acute COVID. And then we developed a algorithm uh, in acute COVID that basically gave you uh, the severity, the immunologic severity of a particular patient. And, and I think one of the issues I've noticed lately in trying to help treat acute COVID is the complete absence of information in the general hospitals and regional hospitals of where these patients stand immunologically. You know, um, they come into the hospital and literally if their O2 is, is low, they admit them, but they don't really know what's driving the, the oxygen exchange or the symptoms by which they categorize acute COVID. And as I said in the International COVID Summit in Rome, hospitalization is not a biomarker. Yet uh, a lot of how we treat acute COVID is based on whether they need to be hospitalized or not, uh, which tells you nothing about what the status of their immune system has been. And I would say over the last almost two years now, if there's anything I've learned, um, the best way to treat uh, acute COVID, and, and I'll get to long COVID in a minute, is, is to restore the immune system back to normal. Number one, A1, restore the immune system back to normal. Uh, usually the shortness of breath, the O2 sats, the rest will take care of themselves, but it also takes time. You know, the one thing that sometimes we don't have because of resources uh, in the hospitals is time. Yeah, that here we are, Bruce, you know, 18 months into this and our level of sophistication from an in vitro diagnostic and um, overall clinical approach is so crude. 
you're right. We don't know where the patients are in the um, course of the infection very well at all. We have no idea about gauging their immune response, uh, nor its critical linkage to thrombosis. So I agree with you. This is such an opportunity because there's so many patients. The syndrome is complicated. And patients range from needing no treatment at all to needing, you know, full life support. There's a real diagnostic um, and uh, and prognostic opportunity from an in vitro diagnostic perspective. So, absolutely, and and you know what, um, you know, like I, I I also said in the Rome meeting, we need to use precision medicine, precision diagnostics in COVID, much like we do in cancer. We don't make a single move in cancer. We don't prescribe a single drug in cancer before we know by, by testing, next-gen sequencing, et cetera, whether or not that drug will work. Yet COVID is probably one of the most complicated diseases I have ever seen. I think others agree with me. Yet we are using nothing but SED rate, CRP, D-dimer, some of the most, when I was in the pathology laboratory, some of the most nonspecific markers known to men. There's 30 papers out there showing the prognostic significance of just IL-6. Yet um, every hospital I've talked to, I'm like, can I have an IL-6 on this patient? Oh, that's a send out. And and you know what you would think two years after uh, COVID has hit and all this information on IL-6 and its prognostic significance, we've taken it one step further with IL-6, IL-10 and other markers into a severity score. But after all this time, we're not even, that's not a routine test. That should be a point of care test or a finger prick for someone to do on every single COVID patient every single day to see what the status of their, of their, uh, of their infection and their immune response is. But so, yeah, I, I, com- I completely agree, Bruce, but I, I really wanted to get to your discovery about the S1 segment being recoverable in the CD16 monocytes. It seemed like a really key, key finding. Yeah, you bet. So I'm actually there. So, you know, we we discovered this immune uh, difference um, uh, between long COVID and um, acute COVID. And and then, you know, we said, why are there these differences? And in our first paper in Frontiers in Immunology, we identified the fact that vascular inflammation was playing a huge role in the symptoms of uh, long COVID or PASC. And then, of course, but this was, again, this was at the end of the summer in 2020, and there's still reports coming out on, hey, there's this thing called long COVID, and these are the symptoms. You know, it's, 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 it's way behind where we, where we should be. But nevertheless, we asked the question, well, why all this vascular inflammation? And why this ongoing immune response, which actually looked more like an adaptive immune response than the innate immune response in acute COVID. And so we started looking. And of course, I went back to my um, favorite viral reservoir cells, the monocyte subpopulations, where we were able to infect with HIV. We also discovered um, and reported uh, hepatitis C in these cells. Uh, Borrelia from Lyme is found in these cells or pieces and parts. 
So we looked at the monocyte subpopulations, the classical, the intermediate, and the non-classical monocytes. And indeed, by flow cytometry, we had an indication that the non-classical and to a lesser extent, the intermediate uh, monocytes were still carrying S1 protein 15, 17 months after uh, infection. Bruce, does that happen with other viral infections that you can find remnants of the virus in monocytes or macrophages so many months afterwards? Well, indeed, we can actually find viruses in, in many cases. We can find HIV. And I, I think the most important, um, I would say, analogous situation is Lyme disease, where these monocytes carry the peptidoglycan cell wall of Borrelia in these cells in the absence of bacterial replication, okay? So for me, and then of course, Zika and dengue fever also uh, are carried by these cells across the blood-brain barrier to cause uh, inflammation uh, in the brain. So it was a perfect setup, or for me, it was like a, certainly a starting place to start looking. And indeed, we found the S1, we sorted the S1 containing monocytes into a tube. Uh, and then we performed the even more specific mass spec uh, and protein sequencing of the proteins in the cells and indeed found the S1 protein and confirmed that with mass spec, um, knowing that just one technique being flow cytometry wasn't going to be enough to convince the masses. And, and that paper should be out um, this month uh, following peer review. But we're on to the next paper, which is post-vaccination long haulers. We're seeing the same phenomenon um, months after vaccination in the same non-classical and intermediate monocytes. And we have now just finalized, so we'll be finishing off the paper. But Bruce, Bruce wait a minute, Bruce. But with the vaccine, though, yeah. we, we don't have viral replication, so we don't have, you said, indeed, we can find viruses, certainly ones, the persistent ones, like, um, you know, Zoster, HIV, or Epstein-Barr virus, or cytomegalovirus. Yeah. But here with vaccine, we don't have the whole virus. We simply have the spike protein. Is, is there something unique about the spike protein and its persistence in the body that's different from other viral proteins that you've been studying? You, you know, it's, it's a great question because, and I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to miss, miss uh, in, inform, but no, when in our initial paper in long COVID, we found the S1 protein and then we did whole genome sequencing of the RNA in those cells, and there's no replication competent virus, just fragments of RNA. And so you're right, there is no infection in the post-vaccine, yet these monocytes also carry the S1 protein <coughs> uh, for long periods of time uh, post-vaccination so, so and are Bruce, causing long, long COVID let, systems. Let yeah. me ask you some questions. Then uh, can the protein, or at least the you know, say obviously it, it it must cleave at the at the um, the cleavage joint between S1 and S2, but uh, can this, are these passed down from uh, into daughter cells or passed by endosomes? How how do they persist? Are they are they extracellular space and they're undergoing phagocytosis by by macrophages? What what do you postulate? How can how can a foreign protein 
uh, persist in the human body like this for 15 months? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a great question. And we think it's because it short circuits the uh, senescence program uh, in these uh, monocytes. And we know that they typically have a lifespan of uh, a week, but under pathologic conditions can live longer. And um, in the case of, you know, carrying the S1, you know, if they're still able to bind to, and that's again, they bind to the vascular inflammation through the fractal kind pathway, which is also in our latest paper, but we are just getting to the heart of why these cells persist for so long um, and carry these, the, these proteins. But again, like I said, this is the same mechanism by which these cells carry Borrelia peptidoglycan, which is cell wall protein uh, for years uh, in the absence of uh, replicating bacteria because they're scavengers. They phagocytize. They, they, um, the non-classical monocytes, their sole role is to patrol the vascular endothelium. So it makes sense that um, the vascular endothelium uh, is inflamed in long COVID and in uh, post-vax uh, long haulers. Well, that's terrific. Well, in the last few minutes, why don't you sketch out for us um, what potentially doctors as consumers and patients and consumers, what would be a state-of-the-art type of laboratory in vitro um, you know, diagnostic, prognostic management strategy, such a serious infection, so common. And it looks like it's so amenable to what the lab can help inform us on this illness. What, what's your, well, what's the dream that we could look forward to in the future? Well, it's, it's the dream is now a reality because Incel DX launched uh, in partnership with Innovative Bioanalysis, a reference lab in Southern California, and Radiance, a reference lab in Chicago, the both the severity score for acute uh, COVID <coughs> and the long hauler index for uh, long haulers that um, that physicians can monitor their patients uh, in response to therapy. Uh, and we just uh, are launching this week uh, in the EU, UK, Mexico, and Brazil, this test, which we've transferred to a company called SynLab, which is basically a, a large reference lab that covers um, huge amounts of territory in the EU, UK, uh, and Latin America, um, has just validated the assay, and we'll be launching that this week um, in the rest of the world. So we are, we're going global with this package of precision diagnostics to help manage both um, the uh, acute COVID and uh, long haulers. And we need to spread the message that something, a disease this complicated demands precision diagnostics. And these are tests that can have a, you know, 24 to 48 hour turnaround time um, and can easily fit into uh, routine uh, management of these patients instead well, that, of just, um, yeah. you know, hoping yeah. that they get better. That's brilliant, Bruce. I just, uh, today I just came home from the hospital and I saw a patient in the office. Uh, he was in the hospital last week, early last week with COVID-19. And, you know, he's trying to recover. He's trying to get back to work. And, you know, I did the best I could with a physical exam, EKG, uh, but my laboratories um, are, are really not going to inform me 
on where he is in the recovery. And I can't wait to have a much more sophisticated approach using the clinical laboratory to be able to tell him uh, where he is. Is it over with? Uh, is he at risk for long hauler syndrome? Right. Uh, you, you see, it's it's, right. it's so important. He was asking me, do I need a chest X-ray? I mean, something simple as that. And um, yeah. I think there's so many patients, and I'm so glad you're filling this unmet need for us. Do you have any final words for our audience? No, I just uh, really appreciate the time. Um, and again, these tests are available at Innovative Bioanalysis, a reference lab uh, on the West Coast, uh, Radiance in Chicago, a reference lab in the Midwest. So Anybody can order them, any physician, hospital, whatever can order them, and it'll tell you uh, much needed information about the prognosis. Because you know what? My final message is we can do a better job at managing these patients than we're doing right now. And it's got to come from precision medicine. Completely agree. I've been working so hard on the therapeutic side. And if anything, I've learned in COVID-19, there really is a range of therapies that can be applied to patients. We just need guidance. Uh, the clinical lab will help us, I think, greatly on, on what to do for, right. for each patient. Well, Bruce Patterson, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. It was a pleasure. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. As we celebrate our five-year anniversary, America Out Loud has expanded its mission through a newly designed website with a host of new contributors, all carrying a vibrant message of hope and survival for this country we love. AmericaOutloud.com. Together, we'll secure the future for generations to come. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. <music> 